When I was in high school, I had two really, really good friends, John LeMay and Bob Kirby. They were both soccer players, so that was a strike against them, but on the other end, they were very smart guys. Both of them were highly intelligent, and I'd always try to have my classes with them so I could sit next to them, and then I could cheat off them. It was a great plan. I'm kidding. I did not cheat. Some of you, I'm just seeing if you're listening. I remember one day in class, I was sitting next to Bob Kirby, and Bob Kirby's a note taker. He's a very good student, but he wasn't listening to the teacher this day. He had his notebook open, and he had all of these colored pens, and then he had some colored, uh, like, pencils, and he was writing this one word in different fonts and coloring it. It's a very good artist, and he would flip the next page and write the same word again, and that word was outrageous. He'd write the word outrageous in a different font and color it. And I'm like, Bob, what are you doing? What's with that word outrageous? And he said, oh, Chris, a couple days ago, my dad bought a new sailboat, 35-foot sailboat, and it's, we're going to name it outrageous, and he wants some ideas of how we paint it on the back of the boat. And he said, come to think of it, Chris, I was talking to my dad, and we, we just joined a Cleveland Yachting Club, and we're going to be racing that sailboat in Saturday races in the summer, and my dad said I could ask one person to join the sail crew. Would you like to join? And I thought, oh, to sail. And I just, all I imagine is myself sitting on the boat with the wind going through my hair, the sun kissing my skin perfectly with the song Calypso by John Denver in the back. <laughs> to sail on the sea on a crystal clear ocean. I'm like, yes, Bob, I will join. So he's like, all right, we start Saturday. I wish I didn't join. Sailing on a sail crew is one of the hardest things you ever have to do. And his dad thought he was Popeye, you know, and he kind of, squab the deck, you know, get under. And he'd give us scuba gear, and we'd have to get under the boat and scrub off all the barnacles, make sure it was super sleek. We'd have to learn how to hoist the sail, how to fold the sail, how to mend the sail, how to do the ropes properly, how to raise the jib, raise the spinnaker, He's always yelling at us, you know, and it was hard, hard work. I can remember after being gone a whole day, because you get there at 7 in the morning, even earlier, sometimes 6, and you get home about 7 at night. Your whole Saturday's taken up with sailing. And I told my dad, man, that's exhausting. He said, I know. That's why I never buy a boat, because if you buy a boat, you have to use a boat. And I remember, like, that's really profound, Dad, but I understand. <laughs> I understand what he means. If you have a boat, it's not as easy and wonderful as you think. And if you're going to enjoy that boat and really have times when you're out just in the middle of the lake or the, you know, the big body of water you're at and letting the sun come down, it takes a lot of work to get there. I'm going to make this argument today. Following Jesus isn't just Sunday. I mean, if you want to have a life where you're full of the joy of Christ, it takes real commitment. It takes your whole life. And that's what we're going to talk about today. If you can open up Matthew 8, the title of this is going to be, Are You In the Boat? Discipleship requires real commitment. We're going to look at verses 18 to 23. And we're going to find that the name of Jesus' boat of discipleship is not for those who just want to sit on shore and follow from a distance. They're those who hop in, grab an oar, raise a sail, 
and really participate. Here's what it says in verse 18 of Matthew 8. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him. A scribe is a Jewish lawyer, a man who knows the religion of Judaism up and down. The scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he had got in the boat, his disciples followed him. So we have here in the story three groups of people. I think the church is composed of three groups of people. I think any group that says they're Christian is composed of these same groups of people. First, you have the crowd. We find that in verse 18. The crowd stays on shore. Then we have, in verse 23, the disciples. The disciples are the ones who hop in the boat. And then you have, in verses 21 and 20, uh, 19 and 21, is what I'm going to call the uncommitted. Those who are curious, those who are, their interest is peaked, you know, maybe this is what I want, but they're not quite all in. And so I want to use this as a diagram of what discipleship's all about. Very simple diagram. You have the shore, you have water in between the shore and the boat, and then you have the boat. So the crowd stays on shore. They're uncommitted. They stay away from the water. The crowd loves to listen to Jesus on the mount when he speaks in eloquent tones and when they're on top of the mountain and the breeze is hitting them. That's great. The crowd has no problem eating the loaves of bread and the fishes when they're multiplied. They'll eat to their heart's content. And they love it when he heals the sick. It's great. But jumping into a small boat and crossing the lake with Jesus is asking too much for the crowd. That's asking too much. Because you know sometimes he might take us across the lake and you know what's on the other side of the lake? Pagans and pigs. I don't want to go over there. They stink. Sometimes, if you get in a boat, storms come out of nowhere, and it could capsize you. I'd rather stay on shore where it's safe, where I can just lay out my towel, let the sun give me a nice tan, and stay dry. That's the crowd. The disciples are committed. They get on the boat. They jump on. They're the person who doesn't know where the captain's going to lead them, but they know with him is life. With him is adventure, and his glory will be breathtaking the whole way. They're committed, they'll row, they'll clean, they'll do whatever it takes to keep that boat floating. And then we're going to find in the middle of the boat and ashore this curious crowd. Verse 19, the scribe says, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go, I'll follow you. However, in order to follow, you need to ask two questions. You need to think about two things before you follow. And the first thing is this, and I, I don't think this is asked too much, but is it possible 
to not be fully committed and not be un- can you be treading water? Is that enough? Is it enough to just kind of dog paddle and stay in the middle of the water where you can hear them on the boat a little bit, but you're really not quite indulging in what's going on at the beach? Can I be a committed Christian on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, go to the beach where everybody else is and just do what I want to do? I am convinced that this, what we're going to read today, and also throughout Scripture, the testimony says you have to be all in. I don't think we believe that, but I think following Christ is an all-in proposition. Either you're staying all in on the shore, or you're all in in the boat. Treading water is a miserable way to live. How long can you tread water? And the reason I say it's miserable is because trying to live in the middle never satisfies on either side. When you live in the middle, you don't quite indulge fully like the rest of people do, I'm sure. So you kind of don't want to be associated with that. But you've, So you're really not all in on that side. But on the other end, you're not fully in where the Spirit wants to take you. So often you don't live in the fullness of the Spirit. You're just treading water. Revelation 3.16 says, Because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. It isn't easy to follow Jesus. And that's the second question. I thought it was. It seems like it when I listen to TV preachers and a lot of churches, they make it seem like following Jesus is easy. Is it? I want it to be easy. Everybody does. I want to live a stress-free, pain-free, trouble-free, comfortable life. I don't like to cause my kids pain. I want them to be fat and happy, you know? I want them to watch Netflix for a long time. I want friends and family who never get sick and never die. I don't want that. I want to be rich. I really do. Like, really, I do. I want to have cake, my cake, and eat it too. I mean, isn't the church predominantly meant to be a support group where we come to seek affirmation, comfort, warm fuzzies, and building our self-confidence and personal satisfaction? Isn't that church? Isn't Jesus like a nurse? He came to identify us in our pain and suffering, seeking to relieve us of our misery, to stroke our psyche rather than call us to follow hard after his Father, his infinite, majestic, holy Father. Isn't Christianity meant to puff up our eagles, to make us feel good about me? Or does it confront our pride? Isn't Christianity giving our best life now or following our Savior wherever he leads us, even sometimes to the other side of the lake? Well, what I'm going to argue out of this passage, to follow Jesus is going to require two things. Two things for us to do. The first one is to weigh anchor. Weigh anchor. Pull up. Pull up. So weigh anchor is an old nautical term. Like you'll, you've probably heard the songs, anchors away. It's not A-W-A-Y. It's way like that. 
because the weight of the anchor is holding the boat to the bottom of the sea, so you pull the weight up, put it on the boat, so now the boat is free to be carried by the wind and the waves. So weighing anchor means I'm ready to set off and let my boat go wherever I'm taken. That's what weigh anchor means. So in a spiritual sense, weighing anchor means pull up that which has you rooted to the world. Be willing to jump on the boat with Christ leading and let him take you wherever he wants. Ooh, that's scary. I don't like that because sometimes I have to go visit the pagans and pigs in the other side of the lake. So if you're ready to weigh anchor, there's three things required from what Jesus said is he's the one that gives the orders. Look at what it says here in verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd, and he's talking to the whole crowd, he gave orders to go to the other side. Not just disciples, anybody. You want to come, we're going to the other side of the lake. He gave orders. He has, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, has been given complete authority from his Father to tell us what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. And his word is not a suggestion. His word is not a sweet idea that fades away in the summer sun as it's going down the horizon. Did you know his word isn't a challenge either? I'm going to challenge you today. His word is a command. It's an order. Go to John, book of John chapter 12. John is three books over from Matthew, John chapter 12. And I want you to look at verses 49 to 50. He says, in verse 49 of John 12, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. So the Father has commanded the Son, and what has he commanded the Son? Oh, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life, so if I obey what he's been commanded to speak, it will add to my life both here and for all eternity. Eternal life should start today, where the Spirit of God's fruit will come out of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness. And they come through his word, obedience to his word. So Jesus says, what I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus gives orders because he has been given the authority from the Father of what to say. That's why we follow him. So, for instance, when I joined Bob's sailing crew, his dad had every right to tell us what to do because it was his boat. And he would tell us, fellas, the boat's not clean enough. Keep scrubbing. And I did not like that, honestly. But he's the captain, and so is Jesus. And as the captain, he can tell me what to do. What if his commands require sacrifice on my part? Like to love the unlovable. To participate in the life of his church, which he calls his bride. To give to the needy. To serve him with my life. Well, he's the captain. What if the captain's words are culturally offensive? Countercultural? Like everything you hear on the news or TV or TikTok or see on Instagram, Jesus says exactly the opposite. Do I still follow him? Yes. He's the captain. He calls himself the Son of Man, which is a title meaning he's joining in with us, but also, Daniel said, 
He's the son of man, meaning he's above us. He's not just like us. He's also my king. The second thing we're going to notice is how he responds to our initial enthusiasm. So you have here in, um, go back to Matthew 8, you have here in verse 19, I mean, this guy is excited, a scribe nonetheless, a man of the law, and he came up to Jesus, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I mean, this is exciting, really. For a Jew to want to follow Jesus, wow. As a pastor, man, I would love to have someone come up to me after a sermon and say, Pastor Chris, I'll tell you what, you really hit me. What you say I believe, and I will do whatever Scripture tells me to do. That would be exciting for me, and I would probably compliment him and feel good about my sermon. Jesus, look what Jesus says. It's like throwing cold water on embers that are trying to light. He says, you know, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his hand. Why would he so quickly discourage this man's encouragement? Simply because initial enthusiasm is not enough. It's not enough for the long haul. Because if you really want to follow Jesus, you really want to be a true disciple, Sunday church is not enough. Streamlining online to watch the services once a week, it's, it's just not enough. A Christian music concert that makes you cry, that's not enough. Discipleship is a constant daily commitment to the Son of Man. It is willing to get involved with other people in their lives. It is giving up my comfort and ease for the sake of the name of Jesus. That's what it is. It's funny, when I went sailing with Bob sometimes, we'd get up early, and his dad let us also take the boat during the week. We didn't have to always go racing on Saturday. Sometimes we could use the boat during the week, and we lived 20 miles from this beautiful beach. Actually, I lived in the town with the beautiful beach, but the boat itself was docked 20 miles, so we'd get up early, still scrub the boat, hoist the sails, and sail 20 miles, and we would anchor by our beach in there. We'd be there like from about noon until four, and our friends would come on the beach and then swim out to the boat, you know, dive off the boat, get suntan on the boat, eat all of Bob's Doritos on the boat, you know, and then after they're done, they'd head back to the shore, dive off, and head back. But Bob and I were left on the boat, and we had to sail the boat back, and we had to clean the boat. We had to fold the sails. We had to make all the ropes the right way. We had to lock it up on the dock, and we'd get home late. Those guys could come for a couple hours, swim and enjoy, but since we were part of the crew, we were committed. It's not just initial enthusiasm of a couple hours. Jesus invites you to the whole life. Third thing we're going to finally see is that if you're on the boat, there's no certainty, no permanence of residence where you're going to live, no promise of comfort. Jesus says in no uncertain terms in verse 20, foxes have holes, birds of the air have their nests, but you know what? The Son of Man, he has no permanence, no place to lay his head. It's not that he was always a homeless guy. It's just that he was following where God wanted him to go, 
city by city, day by day. He had no anchors to hold him to one place. Jesus was not here to build a material empire. He was not here to find security by hoarding riches. He was not waiting to retire. He was not even on the earth to fulfill his bucket list of fun things to do. He was here to do the will of the Father. To serve people and not be served. To give his life as a ransom for many. Sometimes it's hard to serve in a small rural town because a lot of people gain their identity by what they own. They get their identity by their land, their livestock, and their fruit trees. They're rooted in. They're anchored in. They're permanent. They work in order to establish enough to have toys, to have um, things that will be passed on. In the meanwhile, their leisure time, often they spend hunting, going vacation across the state, and eating brats and burgers as they watch their bellies grow and years fly by. They're anchored in. They're often very comfortable. But comfort's a weird word because comfort always curtails the adventure. And it's the adventure where the glory of Jesus is revealed. Comfort's hard. Every hobbit knows this. But unless you leave the hobbit hole, you won't face the dragon. A life committed to Jesus is where I'm willing to let go of my dreams and follow his lead. And that's where the adventure lies. So jumping in the boat, honestly, is very scary. Because you never know where the wind may take you, and yet it's only on the boat where you're going to see the person who can calm the seas, which we're going to read next week. Then there's another person, and he's going to give... So the first thing is we need to learn to weigh anchor if we're going to be true disciples, but we also have to learn to cut cords or those things that hold us to the dock, that keep us attached. That's what we're going to learn through this second story. If Jesus is really the captain of your life, he's sometimes going to cut things that you are attached to. And so when I say cords, I'm... Meaning those things that really get your identity in. Family, friends. Sometimes he's going to ask you to leave some friends because the direction he wants you to go is not the way they're going. Even a familiar, what I would say, religious tradition sometimes we're brought up into. He's going to ask you to do it differently. Our identity needs not to be hidden in our family name, not in a denomination. Our identity needs to be hidden in a person. Christ and Christ alone. Because God wants no competitor. Look at verse 21. One of the strangest verses in the Bible. Another disciple said to him, so guy wants to follow. Very interested in following. But here's what he says. Lord, let me first go, let me first go and bury my father. So if somebody said that to me, I'd be like, absolutely, man. Go home. And when you have everything done, you know, if you all have the service over, just come on and follow. I'll still be here. But Jesus didn't say that. Look what he says in verse 21. He's kind of upset. He says, follow me and leave the dead to bury the dead. What? I mean, really, Jesus? That's, that's callous. Is Jesus mean? Is that what he, let the dead bury the dead? Is that mean? What is he saying? There are two ways to interpret this. 
Specifically, this whole idea of let me go bury my father. The first way to look at it is through our cultural lenses. Because when we hear that, what we think of is all he really wants to do probably is just have a memorial service with a luncheon afterwards and go to a cemetery, bury him. It takes usually about three days to plan that. I don't see what the big deal is. But this guy's Jewish. Actually, in Jewish times, when somebody died, they'd try to get that body in the grave as quick as they could. They'd put ointment on him, wrap him up, and then bury him. It took usually 24 hours. So if that really was the case, that he was going to bury a dead father, what in the world is he doing there talking to Jesus in the first place? Wouldn't he be home shoveling dirt so the body wouldn't rot? So maybe it's his second interpretation, which most Bible scholars think it is. What is the second interpretation? I want you to listen closely to this. Most likely, this person talking to Jesus was an oldest son. As an oldest Jewish son, you inherit all of your father's property. That is, if you continue to work underneath your father, fulfilling all of your phileo responsibilities, which is learning the trade, taking care of the property, training the servants. You have to be oldest son by learning from your father. And um, it's not necessarily because he's going to die now. It's when he does die. You'll be ready to take over. So R.T. France writes, this request to bury his one father would more likely be a request for indefinite postponement of discipleship. For years rather than a few days. So what this man is saying is he saying he'd rather take the time to make sure he was procuring his father's goods, his property, his farm, his inheritance, instead of following Jesus and giving all that up. Let me take care of that first, and then I'll come and follow. It's, it's this lie. It's the lie that a lot of people say to themselves. When life, my life is finally in order, you know what, then I'll, then I'll follow. When I get the salary that you know, I have my education for, when my bank account is doing well, or when I get to kind of experience the, just the things that young people get to experience, when I finally get to experience that, and I have all my ducks in a row, then I'll come and follow. It's the classic, if I win the lottery, then I'll tithe. You know, let the older people, those who've had a chance to sow their oats, let them take church seriously. Let the young married couple take church seriously because they've got kids. But I'm young. I have my whole life ahead of me. And when I'm more established, then I will follow. So Jesus, I'll follow you. But only when I'm good and ready. That's why he says, why don't you let the dead, those who really are spiritually dead, bury the spiritually dead. If you're fully alive, Come and follow me. And I'll be honest, when you do have all your ducks in a row, you still won't follow him because you really will never be satisfied with having your ducks in a row. If you aren't following Jesus now, it never gets easier to follow him later. It gets harder. So all you're saying by let me take care of business first is that your business takes priority over discipleship. My things are important. My security is important. And having fun is important. I've been reading this book. It's called Tell No Man. It's a, it's a strange book. 
it's it, this writer saying these events actually happened, but she changes the name of people. My mom gave me this book. It was written here. I was born 1966, and it's about this guy, Hank Gavin, who was a stockbroker, really successful, and all of a sudden he comes to Christ, and he's willing to give up his stockbroker business to go become an evangelist or a preacher. It's a weird story. Kind of hits home a little bit. But his family's mad, especially his wife, because she likes the lifestyle he provided. And in this book, she said, all of the people around Hank Gavin were following the late, the last great heresy. And it was an interesting phrase. A heresy is, there's a lot of definitions for it, but a heresy is a lie that is very compelling. It sounds good, but it's completely empty when you follow through on the promises it gives. And in this book, this writer says, you want to know what the last great heresy is? To have this earthly paradise, promise in Scripture, but disconnected from God. I want it all, but I don't necessarily need God along with it. Question. Do I really need to follow God to have a good life? To be moral? To be well off? Do I really need to follow God to have a good life? Do I really need Jesus to find fulfillment and satisfaction? Or is Jesus something I add to my life once I have everything else? You might say, oh, come on. No, that is a real question. So in this book, okay, I'll give you a scenario. This was, I read this, sometimes fiction hits me harder than because this story has one part where he's got, Hank Gavin is raised by his grandmother. His mom and dad were dead, but his grandmother is rich, like she owns $30 million estate. She's rich. And she dies, and so he goes to hear the reading of the will of his grandmother. So he goes to his grandmother's lawyer's office. They're reading the will, and her name's Katie Ogilvy Gavin. I, Katie Ogilvy Gavin, being of sound mind, want to leave my estate to my grandson, Henry Gavin, on the condition. So I want to leave my $30 million to my grandson on the condition that he takes some of that money to buy a partnership in his firm where he now works and that he continued to be gainfully employed in that business capacity, which I'm sure God is pleased with. However, this will be disregarded if he decides to go into a career of preaching or evangelism and he will be cut off with only a small shilling. The rest of the money will go to the University of Chicago for historical research in the Northwestern Medical School for further inquiry into neurological diseases and foreign missions. Put that on there, see how godly that is. So here it is. He's sitting, he hears the will, he has to make a decision. Here's what he does. Hank stands up. On his feet he looked tall and thin. You could tell he was a little weary. His eyes were stark, and he said, well, Mr. Martin, who's the lawyer, I'll let you know later. Let me get back to you. And the lawyer stands up, and he says, let me know 
30 million dollars? Think about that a second. You are offered 30 million dollars or a life of fully committed service to Christ, which, which let's, say, let's say the Spirit's calling you to that. But you can have 30 million dollars. All you got to do is take it. What would you honestly do? Some of you are probably saying, but that's just a book. No, it's not. No, it isn't. Is Jesus worth the world? Honestly, is he worth always having a fun time where I don't want to help the church because I'm, you know, I got my 17th vacation to take. Yeah, but there are people dying in the church. It's funny because I'm telling you, I went to see Mark. Do you know what Mark has done for this church? Guy's given his life for this church. He loves Christ. There's a statement, I was thinking through it. What would you trade? What would you trade for to have today at the expense of forfeiting a life with God forever? I once heard a sermon where it says, Satan has deep pockets. Because whatever it is, you would trade, he'll pay it. And then he just wants to see if, you're, if he can buy you. I was reading this article, and it says, do you know what the number one problem in America for men is? And it said, not COVID. It's really kind of shocking. The conclusion is shocking. Not COVID, not masks which I know drives all of us crazy what to do. That's not the number one problem. It's not opioids. Do you know the number one problem is not even depression? This was the author's conclusion. It was kind of sounds, how can this be it? But it makes sense. The number one problem for most men in America is boredom. We have everything we want, it still isn't enough. I was uh, at Men's Prayer Partners. We were praying before, and they were asking me a little bit about my, my life and what brought me to Christ. And, and I was just talking about different things that led me to give my life to Christ. I said, one of the weirdest things, and Derek, you've heard this story probably a lot, but I went to this Tom Petty concert. And you guys probably know who Tom Petty is. Tom Petty, uh, he sings like what I would say country classic rock, kind of skinny. He's skinny as a skeleton. And he always, he, I went to this concert, about 10,000 people, and he's got this guitar strapped to his back, and he kind of walked in like this. Like he's kind of drunk, you know, he walks in. He gets in front of the stage, you know, and he's looking around. And he says, he looks out in the crowd and he goes, Hello, Cleveland! Like that, because we're in Cleveland, Ohio. And he says, Hello, Cleveland! And all my friends go, Did you hear that? That was incredible. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what's in Cleveland? He said Cleveland. Yeah, we're in Cleveland. No, no, no. He knows we're here in Cleveland. Like, and I'm looking around, and it was the weirdest thing. Everybody, it's like they're all zombies. Like, they're all excited about stupid things. And then right after that, so after the concert, I go to a bar. And I see a lot of my buddies from high school there. 
And one guy comes up to me. He goes, do you remember that interception you had about six years in June at JV football? That was incredible. Really? Is that all we talk about? Is that life? Man, I caught a fish this big one time. Well, well next week I caught one a little bit big. Haven't you caught like 700 fish in your life? Yeah, but I caught one this big one. That's it? That's all we got to talk about? Have you ever gotten in the middle of somebody's life and led them to the Lord or seen a family come back together, been able to help somebody in an incredible need, and they say, why do you do this? Because of Christ. And they're like, I want to know that person. Now that's an exciting life. Wait till you see the fish we catch in heaven. Don't, I mean, compared to here. Justin, wait till you see that. I mean, you catch good fish. But you go on the silver sea, the clear sea that comes out of the throne of God, you're going to catch a fish that's 40 feet long. It's going to be incredible. You're going to say, man, what did I think of those little minnows I'd catch on earth? Who did I think I was? We have bigger fish to catch. We've been called to a bigger mission. It's funny to uh, end my boat story. The thing, however, being on a crew, it was hard. But, you know, I got to eat all the free food at the Cleveland Yachting Club because I was on Bob Kirby's dad's boat. I could eat anything I wanted. Did you know that because I was on that boat on 4th of July, we didn't have to sit in the field watching fireworks. We could go out on the lake where they shot them right above our head and watch these magnificent things. We could take the boat all the way out to Putin bay Island in the middle of Lake Erie and back. I got to do those things because I was part of the crew. I got to go on real adventure sailing. The real adventure Christ, there's nothing like it. It's scary. It's terrifying. But that's where you see glory. And one taste of glory will hook you. 